You're listening to Sustainability Inc., a new limited series podcast from Boston Consulting Group, produced by Fortune Brand Studio. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. Hello, I'm Gaia Vince, host of Sustainability Inc. Throughout the 12 episodes in our series, we've delved into the innovative, inspiring missions of top companies around the globe, talking to the business leaders at the front lines of achieving real climate impact. With the stakes higher than ever and the opportunity to make a difference greater than ever, these are the stories to inspire us all to join the urgent fight for true sustainability. This episode, I'm here with special guests Rich Lesser, Global Chair of Boston Consulting Group, and Alan Murray, CEO of Fortune Media, the business minds behind the partnership that brought Sustainability Inc. into being. Now, in the 11 episodes of Sustainability Inc., we've explored the very many exciting, different, varied ways that companies have been innovating to create more sustainable solutions, really reinventing themselves to reach net zero. Through this series, there has been this key theme, which has been the expansive, you might even call it holistic idea of sustainability. It's not just about recycling or reducing your energy use. We've really heard about how it's about building a new company ethos that embraces social as well as environmental well-being. And we've heard about challenges. There are no end of challenges, but we've also heard about optimism. And we've had guests that have ranged from global CEOs from huge companies like the energy giant Orsted to the fabric retailer Patagonia to startups like Coral Vita, which won the Earthshot Prize last year. It's been extremely exciting. Now, we last spoke to both of you before the COP26 climate conference. You were talking a lot then about your hopes and dreams for how things might unveil at the end of last year. We're in a different place now. We're still in the middle of a global pandemic, but we've also heard from some agreements at the COP26. So things have moved along. Rich, how do you feel? Do you feel more optimistic? I feel encouraged at the progress we are making. I think that we still have a long way to go. When asked many times about COP26, I have said that we underdelivered on the science, but we overdelivered on the political backdrop. What we ended up with was a bolder UN over-alignment on mentioning carbon, mentioning fossil fuels for the first time. We saw agreements on methane reduction, reforestation. We saw the US and China, who've had a hard time coming together on anything, issuing a statement. And we saw a step up in the business community like none other we've seen before. People who'd been to many, many cops were saying to me, they saw more engagement from the business community at this cop than they had seen at all the prior ones combined. I know that you've released a net zero report recently at the World Economic Forum. Tell me a bit about what was in that. The focus this year was on what we called winning the race to net zero and really providing what is an overall plan that CEOs can follow to be ambitious on this journey. 
it had two main blocks. The first, of course, was what are the kinds of steps we see companies taking in their strategy, their operations, their business portfolio, and their organization? Why is it an imperative for companies to act? And there, the data was incredibly clear that forecasts have tended to underpredict how fast technologies come along. That's meant that there's greater risk of stranded assets than people perceive. And that in fact, the people that are moving first are gaining real business advantage in terms of hiring and retention of top talent, in terms of being a part of the segments of the market that are growing faster, in terms of being able to make more progress on saving cost and carbon than they anticipate, in terms of addressing regulatory risk and getting better access to financing. And all of that translates into valuation. So we need CEOs and business leaders to recognize, yes, it's the right thing to do for the planet. and We all have a responsibility, but we also have a responsibility to build thriving businesses and being ahead on this increases the chance of doing it, doesn't decrease the chance. I mean, it sounds like everybody's aligned, like you want to increase profitability, but you also want to make a planet that we can live on and that we can do business on. And that is something that governments and companies are aligned in. Um, Alan, how do you think that they can accelerate efforts? You know, what's holding us back? Because we do need to act a lot faster than we are. Yeah, Gaia, I think there's more going on here in the business community than alignment. I was underwhelmed with what governments did at COP26. But what I've seen over the last 12 months in the business community is really pretty profound. There is a dynamic that's taking hold. It starts with a new generation of employees who are really super serious about this in making their employment choices and their purchases. Then you have a set of companies dealing with what everyone calls the great resignation, more attentive to their employees than ever before. So they have to take it seriously. You're starting to see in the investor community a huge push from investors to say, you've got to take this seriously. And then part of what happens, and this to me is kind of the most interesting dynamic, if you get a few of the really big companies taking it seriously, pushing it down the supply chain, that has the potential to become really, really significant. I want to pick up on one of the things that you mentioned there, Alan, which I think is very, very interesting. And we saw it time and time again on the Sustainability Inc. series, which is this idea that one peg, one key company in a huge supply chain can actually lead a revolution that goes far, far further. And we've heard from many companies that want much more transparent supply chains. They really want to look down the end and check that it's as sustainable as it can be. And that, of course, does drive real change, whether we're talking about agribusiness, whether we're talking about auto industry. We spoke to Dell, for example. All of these companies are really keen that the supply chain is as sustainable as it can be for consumers, but also for investors. Rich, how do you think that is going to transform this movement towards sustainability? I think it's the single biggest lever within the business community. I thought Alan summarized it really well. I think the progress we've seen with employees and with investors has been essential to get the ball rolling. But now to get the speed that we need, we need to have a supply chain focus and we need leaders who are consumer facing at the ends of value chains to be focused on their entire value chains. But it also comes with making commitments and pushing different elements in the supply chain and finding ways to do it in innovative ways to hopefully create offerings that consumers or end customers will be ready to pay for 
the good news is not to pay as much more for as people expect. That was the work we'd done earlier about value chains that said, yes, it does have an increase at the end consumer, but a much smaller increase, one to 4% in most of the leading carbon intensive value chains than 10 or 20%, which is what I think a lot of people anticipated. And so there's an opportunity to act. There's an advantage that comes from acting faster because you build a credibility with the consumer that should result in loyalty, and auto is a perfect example where we're starting to see it really take hold where one or two companies move first, but others feel the need to move and things pick up at a pretty fast pace at that point. Now, all of these changes, they're made possible. We have a completely different way of analyzing our data. So there is this digital transformation and this produces new opportunities, new jobs for people in the whole of the green tech industry. But there are also some difficulties, some huge challenges, because the old way of doing things is quite often the polluting way of doing things. How can companies manage this? If I can just jump in, Gaia, the data point you're making is really important, and Rich knows a lot more about this than I do, but it seems to me that's one place where we still aren't yet in a good place. I mean, you take sustainable investing, for instance. People are slapping the word sustainable on all kinds of products, but we don't have good data on whether they really are pushing things in the right direction or not. Same with companies. Everybody's now committing to a 2050 goal and they're putting out reports about all the good works they're doing, but we don't have the data to hold them accountable. And that's a missing piece of the puzzle that has to be put in place if we're going to really drive this thing forward. Alan made a really important point that I want to build on, which is right now, companies think they're tracking the carbon footprint in their own operations and sometimes in their supply base. And Everything we've seen, and it's been a huge portion of our work with clients, is that often those measurements aren't even accurate today, that there's much more errors embedded in current carbon estimates, either because two locations use different process technologies or two products that look similar, like clear glass and green glass, actually have very different amounts of carbon embedded in them, or they're different operational elements that have big impacts. So to Alan's point, where we're putting a lot of effort right now is how do you measure and track carbon and how do you bring intelligence into decision making for executives so that they can make smarter decisions? And then to your last point, how do you make it easier to do that across an entire supply chain so that it's easier to put the carbon in of an upstream supplier and have it flow all the way through the supply base down to the downstream producer of the final product and to be able to do that. And we believe that technology can actually be an accelerant to better measures, better intelligence to make decisions, and more ability to flow through information. And that combined with bigger commitments, what people are committed to acting on, can be an enormous impetus to progress. So BCG has been developing tools to do just this. Tell me about where you're at with that and how companies can get involved. The most exciting tool that we've been working on in the climate space in our gamma unit, which is our AI unit, is called CO2 AI. And we built it specifically first to help our own teams where clients were asking us to develop a climate transformation plan. But if you don't know what you've got in terms of your carbon footprint and you don't know where it's coming from, it's very hard to know how to act on it. And then once you do know, there's so many different levers to pull on, whether it might be better to use this process technology source from this location or that one from that location. How do I realize the impact on an upstream supplier? 
So the second part was to build a tremendous amount of intelligence into it and to be able to use natural language to absorb tremendous amounts of data and to actually provide guideposts to the many, many executives in a company trying to sort out, well, what do I prioritize? What's the biggest bang for the buck, so to speak, in terms of where I focus my efforts? So CO2AI from our end is a tool that's really designed to both get the data together, allow it to work across company borders, and then bring real intelligence to support decision making. And that's where we're focused. We realize that any one group acting alone isn't sufficient. That's why I'm excited that we just announced a major partnership with CDP, the organization that runs the Global Environment Disclosure System, to build a platform for companies to track product-level emissions data across their entire supply chains. I think that this will be one part of what can be a whole range of technology solutions that we, and also others, can be developing to help companies accelerate their progress on this journey and to know if they're really making progress consistent with what they said they intend to do. We've heard throughout this series about the importance of building networks, creating alliances, and forging these new operating cultures of sustainability where different companies use different parts of expertise to really try and meet similar goals. How important is that? Do you see a change where before there was much more competition and now there is much more cooperation, Alan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, one way to get there is through regulation, but that has its downsides. The regulation is often overly prescriptive, misapplied, wrongheaded. But another way to get there as companies realize that there is a competitive advantage here and that it has to happen is through that kind of cooperation. You had on the series Orsted, the Danish power firm. That's one of my favorite examples from last year. They did this huge multi-billion dollar investment with Moller Maersk, the shipping company. Well, what they're talking about doing is building wind farms out in the middle of the North Sea. So they're going to build wind farms, and those wind farms are going to create hydrogen fuel to power Moller Maersk ships. And when we had the CEO of Moller Maersk at one of our Fortune events mid last year, we said, why are you doing this? And he didn't hesitate for one second. He said, well, I'm doing it because I'm getting calls every day from my most important customers who say, hey, you got to get the carbon out of your fuel by the end of the decade because I'm committing to get the carbon out of my supply chain by the end of the decade. So it's a great example of the power of this supply chain thinking. And it does require a degree of cooperation that's not always first instinct for business. I mean, in nature, it's competition by cooperation. We saw so many examples. Rich, have you got any examples of your own? It will be easier to go further faster if even direct competitors within a sector find ways to at least set some common principles, some common ways they're going to measure. Imagine being a smaller, a medium-sized company supporting multiple firms in the same sector, and each one wants to measure the carbon footprint a different way. Have you use a different platform to report the data? Think about a different time frame or different ways they're going to communicate around it. It can be overwhelming for huge portions of a value chain that are caught in the middle with different customers wanting different things at different times. 
the more we can get sectors not to agree on exactly how they're going to do it. They compete with each other. They set their own goals, but at least some common set of standards, some common principles, some common ways they're going to take data in and measure things. It can make it much easier for the whole sector to move in a faster and more efficient way. And if you look at the food industry, you see them starting to have those kinds of dogs. If you look at the fashion industry, they're starting to have those kinds of dogs about how do we work together not to stop competing for the end customer, for who can get their first and best, but to set standards and ways of operating that'll make us easier and less risky for us all to move in an aggressive way here. And we did hear from food industry and from fashion industry who are doing just that. And I think that is one of the incredible transformations that we're really seeing in the past, I'd say even less than a decade. We are really in an exciting period of transformation. What have you noticed, Alan? Well, one of the things we talked about, I think, in the first episode that continues to amaze me, and it gets to your point about cooperation, is that the pandemic accelerated movement. It didn't slow it down. And that was very different than the recession that happened in 2006, 2007, which had the opposite effect. It definitely slowed down progress on sustainability. But this time we're seeing the opposite. And I think it goes to your point that people are thinking about the world in a different way today than they did two years ago. There's a new sense of kind of common vulnerability that's affecting the way we think about a lot of things, including our health, including wellness, including things like mental health, but particularly including the environment. I mean, these things are hard to prove or diagnose or to metricize, but I think there's been a change in the way people think about our responsibilities to the future. I agree. And I think one of the things that was noticeable as well about the COP26 was the youth factor. There was a large contingent of young people really driving change to the people who were talking in the room. They weren't in the room, but they were driving that movement. And it feels like their voice is a different voice. It's very much about this sort of planetary sensibility and that we do have to act. And the other thing which came up a lot actually in this series is this idea of circularity, this idea that instead of this linear model where we take resources out of the planet and we make something, energy or a product or whatever, and then at the end it's sort of thrown away somewhere, and then we start all over again, is wasteful, it's unnatural and it's got to end. If we think capitalism really relies on the unpaid work of nature, of the natural world, I think there's this recognition now that the world, the forests, the ocean, the atmosphere, they need care now to keep this circularity going. And I see this as a movement which a lot of our guests talked about. Rich, how important do you think this is becoming? Well, there's two separate points that are both really important. One is a recognition that circularity is a critical part. It's one of six or seven major levers, along with shifting to different kinds of energy sources, along with using different technologies that is going to be critical to make the kind of progress we need and also the most responsible thing to do. I would also just highlight your second point, which is being regenerative and how we think about our role in the world rather than exploitive. 
I think is an underlying theme. We see it both in the way companies are starting to think, but also in the way leaders are starting to think. And part of our language with our clients right now, when we're talking about leadership development, is how do you move to a more regenerative mindset, building the capacity of your people rather than working them to the bone at a time that we're all trying to attract and hold on to great talent. How do we think about it with regard to natural resources? How do we think about it in our roles in our communities to create stronger and vibrant and sustainable and thriving communities? I think this role of regenerative is going to be one of the core underlying themes. Regenerative, it's a really strong word and it's a really strong idea. It's being embraced by agriculture. It's also being embraced in the social sphere. It feels like this environmental, this sort of holistic way of looking at the whole of the workforce, the whole of the supply chain, the whole of the product experience to do with embracing and enveloped by its environment is now getting a new sort of recognition. Alan, what are your feelings about this regenerative renaissance? I think it's fascinating. It's really hard sometimes to understand what drives these things and what makes them happen, but there's no question they're happening. The other day, I was with a dozen CEOs of a variety of different consumer companies, and they were talking about how much has changed in the last two years alone in the ways that consumers think about purchases. And sustainability was a piece of it, but it's not just sustainability. You know, when you thought about workers or even when you thought about your own time, we used to think about time management. Like, how do I take the hours that I have in the day and get maximum productivity out of those hours? And now you find people thinking much more about, geez, how do I conserve energy when necessary, regenerate energy, think about my day and my life as preserving my ability to contribute for the maximum time possible? I think it's just a complete mind shift. And it's funny to think about what exactly caused it to happen. But I can tell you, the people I'm talking to in the business community have no doubt it did happen. I mean, we're going through a renewable revolution. And the renewable revolution is about more than energy. It's about renewing our resources. It's about regenerative agriculture. It's about circularity of production processes. And it's about that renewability of our own personal energies too. And I think this big kind of youth quake, which is coming up, they are very concerned about these issues. And I'm wondering how that affects companies as they try to reach their sustainability goals. Rich. Companies are very aware that there's been a massive shift in the expectation of young people relative to the generations that came before. Absolutely, in terms of where they work, in some countries, up to half of employees use the sustainability orientation of the employer as a major decision criteria on where they go to work and often whether they choose to stay or move on. As consumers, young people take it more into consideration. Frankly, companies don't yet make it easy for them. <laughs> the labeling on many products is utterly cryptic to figure out if you're buying a product that's actually got a low carbon footprint or a high one, more sustainable or less sustainable. So we need to make it easier for those consumers to act on their desires. And that's one area where sectors working together can set some expectations on how we label and describe products that could make a big difference. But this next generation and the critical role they're playing, not just as activists, but as employees and future employees and as customers, I think will be market shaping and company shaping in very fundamental ways and very exciting ways. I mean, we want young people to take this seriously. All leaders, all people respond to context. 
We change often in response to the context around us changing. When investors change their expectations, it affects how companies behave. Well, frankly, in today's world, where your most precious asset by far is your people, the one you spend most of your time thinking about is your people. When they change the context of what they want and what they need and what they're counting on from their employees or the businesses that they do business with, then that has a huge impact on how companies are likely to behave. It's a really critical voice right now. Obviously, it's critical in terms of getting public policy aligned here, too. So they play a role. We hear about that role, the role they play as activists trying to shape public policy. But I think in some ways it's even bigger what they're doing inside organizations and as a major part of the market and a growing part of the market. Well, this is the young person's world. The coming decades of global heating that we are expecting are frightening. The resource limitations we're facing are worrying. This is the world that the young people are inheriting. They're going to be the CEOs of this changed world. Now, we have all got this net zero goal that we're supposed to be reaching by 2050. Whether we reach it is the big question. It is a huge undertaking. What gives you the most hope in the next five years? Alan. Look, I'm an optimist. Things are moving in the right direction. They're moving faster than I would have predicted a year ago or two years ago. History has shown us over and over again that human ingenuity is not something you want to bet against. We always over-deliver in terms of the human ability to come up with new solutions to the most difficult problems. So ultimately, that's what makes me optimistic. I think we've got some big problems to solve over the course of the next 30 years, but I think we have massive capability to solve them. Rich. I feel like we're having a much more sophisticated technology discussion than we had a year or two ago. On the one hand, many fewer companies are using technology as an excuse for why they can't act. The what we've seen in our own work, but now I just hear more and more companies referencing is, you can go, depending on the industry, 40 to 70% of the way to removing your own carbon with technologies that exist today and at costs that are not unaffordable. In some cases, you actually can make money because you're actually moving to lower cost solutions as well. In other cases, you can pay for some of the moderately expensive decarbonization efforts with the savings in other areas. But we can go much further with today's technology than we realize. On the other hand, as you've said, we're going to net zero, not net 30 or net 40. And in order to get that last, depending on the sector, 20 to 40% of the carbon out, we do need advanced technology. And there's much more discussion now about how do we invest now to get key new technologies down the cost curve so that by the 2030s and 2040s, when we really need to deploy them at scale, they will be affordable, whether it's hydrogen, direct air capture, sustainable aviation fuel, long-term energy storage, a whole range of technologies. We have to remember the biggest challenge is not the decarbonization that happens in the richest parts of the world, in the US or North America, in Europe, in Japan or Australia. It will be what we do to help low and middle income countries that have a desperate need for energy, a need for cheap energy, and don't have the resources to make the kind of investments that are often needed to make progress. And I think we need to get more support into low and middle income countries, and we need to bring technologies down the cost curve as fast as we can if we're really gonna decarbonize the whole world and not just the wealthiest parts of the world, which will make us all feel good about the progress we've made, but will not make us feel good in terms of the temperature on the planet. 
So that's still got to stay top of mind. And we've made progress on that front too. I think that'll be a big focus in 2022 as we head to a COP in Egypt, in Africa. I think a lot of the focus will be on how do we support adaptation, resilience, and decarbonization in more challenging parts of the world. Sustainability is a global problem, a challenge we must all rise to if we're to have any hope of a livable planet in the decades to come. The problems we face of rising global temperature, climate change, inequality, biodiversity loss can feel overwhelming. It can seem hopeless. We are a vast human population locked into intransigent socio-political economic systems. Our industrial societies are built on fossil fuels. Change is hard. Yet throughout this series, we've heard from industry, from companies big and small who are pioneering sometimes quite dramatic change. Businesses that realize the importance of their role in the bigger social and environmental context. We've heard from a food company that's begun fundamentally changing industrial farming methods. We've heard from an energy giant that's moved completely to renewable production and is pioneering clean hydrogen at scale. We've heard from next generation foods, vehicles and farms, companies that have found opportunities to operate within social and environmental boundaries, producing goods and services without harming people and planet. Their stories should inspire us all. Change is already underway. There is a momentum building for a different way of doing business. For the health of our planet and our societies, sustainability is no longer a choice. Let's get there sooner. Sustainability Inc. is a Boston Consulting Group podcast produced by Fortune Brand Studio without the participation of the Fortune editorial staff. Thank you for listening to Sustainability Inc. Please subscribe, download and leave comments and ratings wherever you listen.